I wanted to talk tonight about how precious the teachings are. And I have some notes and I'll use them some. But um, just at the end of the sitting, I was reflecting on my 22 years of teaching this group. And I did a quick tally of how many Thursday nights I'm likely to be here between now and when I leave. And um, it's not so many. It's probably less than 20, because I'll be gone some. So I just want you all to know that I really appreciate your presence and the amazing thing that we have here. We have this space. And we have the Dharma seven days a week and different teachers, different classes. And it's amazing that that's true. And so I hope you all take advantage of it. Some years ago, I attended a... I spent some time at Amravati, and there was a big temple um, dedication. Amravati is one of the monasteries in England from our particular lineage. And so they had this new building, and one of the things that they did was they dug a hole in the floor, or left a hole, I guess is probably the better way to say it. And then just before the temple was to be dedicated, there came out this container with all of these jewels, gold and diamonds, and anything that anybody had to offer, watches, all kinds of things, and they all went into the hole, and then it got sealed over. And it's there. And I was sort of astounded at that story, you know, like, why? (laughs) Am I going to send my grandmother's bracelet off to be buried? But maybe, because it's that sense of this is an offering in gratitude for the great treasure that we've all received, and so people make these really symbolic offerings. So, you know, as always in Buddhism, there's lists, right? And so I'm working a little bit with a list tonight of these things that are treasures, and one of them is the the treasure of conviction about your practice. Sometimes the word is translated as faith, that's not so good for most of us because faith in our world tends to have to do with belief. So I really like the translation of conviction because it's that place where we come to know what we know. We trust the practice. And as I said at the beginning in the instructions, I said, you know, that partly what you're doing is being present with your own heart and mind to see what is there. As that wonderful instruction, relax into the breath and notice what takes you away. And it's not, it doesn't say notice and judge. It doesn't say notice and kick yourself around the block because you've been bad and you don't know how to meditate. It just says notice. Notice what takes you away because that's going to teach you something about the nature of your own heart and mind. And that's what's important. All of the instructions 
in our practice are instructions so that you can investigate your heart and mind and see what is true there. See what causes suffering. See where you're really attached. See what happens when you let go. See, notice when you're not suffering and really pay attention to those things. Now, you're likely to find out that what the Buddha said about how suffering is caused and what brings it to an end is true. Your mind isn't so really so very different from anybody else's mind. I'm always a little annoyed when I find that out. Like, oh, one more time, the Buddha was right. You know, I'm attached and I'm suffering. What do you know? And, you know, as I'm getting a little older, maybe I'm getting a little easier with it. But that conviction is that place where we really begin to trust. We begin to trust that if we take time to practice, that it will be helpful to us. And we begin to trust what we see and what, what is the nature of suffering. In the sutta that this list comes from, the Buddha is described as a trainer or a tamer for those who are fit to be tamed. So that's you. And I often think of this as a bit like having a personal trainer. You know, you go to the gym, you sign on if you have enough money to work with a personal trainer for a while. And the Buddha's instructions are just that. You know, that if you pay attention, if you study, if you learn what he taught and take them on, that it's a training and you train your own heart and mind. And so we're gifted with that. It's a treasure. And so then, one of the basic things in this practice is the cultivation of virtue. Now, virtue is not a 21st century American word. We don't talk about it a lot. And it's not, it's just not a word that's, you know, in the common usage of our time. Probably, you know, most of you don't think about your virtue very much. But it's a very essential part of this practice. And you could think of it as the ethics of the practice. It's probably a perfectly good modern world word. And, and so this is the practice. For most of us, it's the five training precepts. Not harming not taking that which is not given, not harming with your sexuality, not harming with your speech, and not intoxicating body or mind. And many of us, probably many people in this room, live by those precepts. Some of us take them every day as part of our practice. You know, And um, it's considered to be kind of the base of practice. And one of the most interesting things about working with precepts is that you can actually assess how your practice is doing by how well you're doing with the precepts. Because sometimes, you know, people all the time come to interviews and say, oh, my practice is terrible, you know, I haven't sat for the last six weeks, or my study is, you know, I forgot, I haven't read any books, you know, I haven't sat a retreat. But the question then is, well, how are your precepts doing? How are you doing with the precepts? And usually people sit there and go through the five and think, oh, well, you know, actually, I'm doing pretty well. 
Okay, so that's a good sign. Because if you're really doing pretty well with the precepts, then the meditation thing can kick back in at some point. And it will. Everybody has ups and downs. And your practice will move ahead. So so it's, it's, a, it's the foundation. It's also the foundation because if you're not keeping the precepts, guess what's going to happen to your meditation practice? You know, as my teacher Jack Cornfield used to like to say, you know, kick the dog, steal something from your neighbor's garden, do something you shouldn't do with your sexuality, say something mean, and then drink a can of beer, and then sit down on the cushion and see what happens. It won't be good. You know, your mind will not be still or quiet or settled or focused or wise or any of those things. So, you know, it's pretty simple that paying attention to these precepts actually creates a foundation um, for, for uh, what we're doing. And out of that comes the next step, which is the cultivation of what's sometimes called conscience. Or sometimes in the Buddhist world, the word shame is actually used. And I really want to say, if you ever hear a teacher talking about shame in, in, as part of a Dharma talk, it's a somewhat different meaning from the kind of shame that we talk about psychologically. And what it really means is that you see what you did, you realize you could do better, and you have some sense of regret if it caused some suffering. So it's that kind of thing. So I, you know, the word conscience is probably a little bit better. And so I think you know, as we practice and we, we really work with sitting with what is, you know, as the instructions tonight, just be here, be present, no matter what mind state you walked in with, or no matter what you did today, no matter what kind thing or what mean thing or whatever, and you sit with it. And, and when we do that, that place of reactivity begins to, to lessen. That's actually why the instruction about speech is so important. I mean, speech, hearing. <laughs> it was speech. And, you know, so there we were, you know, all this talking going on outside. And I'm willing to bet that somebody had a somewhat irritated thought. You know, like, wouldn't they go away? Shouldn't Denny leap up and go talk to them? You know, how come they didn't see the sign that's up there that says, talk someplace else? Whatever, you know. But they didn't. And, and you know what? It's, it is just sound. And often the instruction in practice is to just hear... See if you can notice the vibration at the eardrum with sound, no matter what the sound is. Beautiful birds, the sound of the wind, the stream going by, the music in the distance, or voices. And when you begin to do that, it actually is possible when you're very quiet to hear sound and not the mind doesn't even kick in and say what it is. It's kind of an interesting place. But at the very least, you begin to not be reactive. So this place of conscience takes that learning not to be reactive around our own behavior so that we can look at it and instead of getting all shamed in our conventional sense of using the word by we go, oh, I really didn't, I could have done better. And then you go, you apologize, you fix it, you do whatever. And then the next time, you know, sometimes there's that little flag, oh, 
I'm sitting with this person, I have to really watch my speech. I mean, how often, you know, in everyday life, speech is such an issue for most of us. And so that little extra, you know, pay attention, pay attention, don't open your mouth without counting to 10 or whatever it is you need to do, kicks in, and then you're able to be careful. So these two things really, really go together, and and it's very much part of the training. And then those two lead into the next one, which is the cultivation of concern. So this is this place where we really, you know, out of not wanting to harm, out of having some sense of wanting to do the best we can for ourselves and for for all other beings, then we open our eyes to the world and to our community and we develop some sense of concern. We pay attention, um, hopefully, with some eye to the long view, you know. And um, I, I've thought a lot since the tsunami, you know, happened in, in Japan about what is it to cultivate concern? How is it that we, you know, how is it that there are nuclear plants in a tsunami zone and and where do, we, where, where do we do things? It's not just the Japanese by any stretch of the imagination. We've got nuclear plants and earthquake zones. And so how do we develop a, a long, long view that is our concern for our planet, this incredibly precious and unusual place? You know, no, if, no matter how possible it is that there might be other planets with intelligent life, they're not a dime a dozen. You know, they're just not. And so to have that and to have whatever it is that mind is, is very precious. And out of that awareness to hold our concern for all beings and for our planet. Sometimes people will say, well, it's just me, you know. How can my actions count? It's just me. I'm just one of six billion people, you know. But it's very important to remember that all actions have consequences. You know, every time I hit the bell, it rings for a while, right? Everything you do rings for a while. That's the karma of it. The word karma means your actions, actually. And it means the actions and their consequences. So every kind act, every kind word, Every plastic bag that you get into the recycling and not into the ocean, all of those kinds of things, everyone counts. And obviously, you know, if you keep, people keep doing it, it begins to add up. And that's a very important place to um, consider. I've so often, you know, I'm over the years, I have this brilliant idea about something. And I think, wow, you know, I'll bet, you know, this seems really new. And then I discover that I'm part of a movement, you know, that I'm not the only person having this idea. There's all kinds of people out there having the idea at the same time. It's, it's kind of annoying. I'd much rather it were me, you know, having the brilliant idea. But it's probably more effective that it's a movement. And so then, you know, you have movements of people, you know, seeking liberation in one way or another. 
that happen and it grows out of these individual actions. Part of the supporting of all of this is the treasure of listening. So it's listening to talks like you're listening now. I think it's also listening when we read and we study. I just sat a period of retreat during this last month that I was gone and um, I had the amazing experience of going to the dharmaseed.org website, which if you don't know it, you should. All you have to remember is the word dharmaseed, like appleseed. And I knew there was a retreat that had happened at Spirit Rock last fall that I was kind of interested in. So I found it, and there were all the talks for the retreat. And all I had to do was download them. And they're happy for me to make a donation if I'd like to, but I don't have to. There's no requirement. They don't send you a reminder. Hey, you just downloaded 20 talks. How about a donation? You know, it's just there for the taking. And I think the sense is that some people, you know, just take them and other people can make an offering. It was such a treasure. You know, I had a talk every morning and a guided meditation and another talk in the evening. And very rich, very wonderful teachings. And, and, that, and the thing about listening to, to talks when you have a, you know, earbuds in or a headset on, there's a, there's a tradition that very special instructions are whispered directly into your ear. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know if it really makes a difference or not, but it feels different when it's coming right in here. There's something about, you know, each teacher was whispering their teachings right into my ear and and you can take it in. So so it's a very wonderful habit. You know, you may have a stack this high of Dharma books. I know lots of people who do. That's okay. You know, even if you get through one or two or three or four or six or eight in a year, that's good because that's that way of, of hearing. You hear the same teachings over and over and over. It's true. You know, we all give the same Dharma talk over and over again. The same books get written over and over again. The Buddha himself gave the same teachings over and over again. If you read the suttas, you'll see that. And part of that, it's like when you listen to music over and over again, after a while, it's in your bones. And it comes back to you when you need it. So that's really the important part of hearing and listening. And then out of all of this, then begins to arise this great spirit of generosity, you know, really wanting then to share what we have. We share money and resources, places like this, get built, Spirit Rock, all of the other meditation centers that are wonderful. Um, And we also can be generous out in the community with what resources we have. And we can be generous with the Dharma. It's the greatest gift that anybody can give. It's that moment when you're able to share something with someone and, and perhaps help them find their own way to the ending of suffering. I've often told the story, you know, like everybody else, I get a gazillion phone calls for fundraising. And one day, this is a couple of years ago, several years ago now actually, it was the American Civil Liberties Unit, Union. And it's, you know, they're a group of good people. I like what they do. So I'll at least listen to them. And so they called and they listened and they were wanting me to be a monthly donor or something. 
Um, yeah, maybe. And then they said, well, if you do that, then you will be one of our guardians of liberty. Well, you know, <laughs> how can you resist? You know, no, I don't want to be a guardian of liberty. You know, it sounded pretty good. So, you know, it's that, that place where even as, as we are filled up with the Dharma, you know, our practice, keeping the precepts, being, not being reactive, really developing our conscience and our concern and listening, you are guardians of the Dharma. You are guardians of this amazing teaching about the ending of suffering. And so then out of that is that place of wanting to share. And then last of all, and there's a teaching in Soto Zen that says that just to sit is to be enlightened. It's a wonderful teaching. Isn't that great? Just to sit is to be enlightened. So you might be sitting there thinking, oh, I don't think so, the sitting I just had wasn't so great. But you knew you needed to sit. You know, Heidi came in tonight and said, oh, I need to sit in the worst way. So do I, you know. But imagine if Heidi didn't know she needed to sit, you know, or if I didn't know I needed to sit, or if you didn't know that. That is where, you know, you really get yourself into trouble. But when you begin to know there's some place that is really served, your own being and your own being, you suffer less, and the people around you suffer less when you practice. That's the enlightened place. In listening... um, to these talks, Gil Fransdahl, who's done a lot of Zen practice, was referring to this particular teaching. And he said, the, the idea is that, that your own Buddha nature is in there. And so your job in your practice is to express that, to express the awake place, the possibility of awakeness in your own being. Another way to consider this, um, you know, one of my most important teachers over the years has been the Dalai Lama, and um, the idea is that he is the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. And I'm sure if you asked him, are you the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion, he would probably say, no, I'm just a simple Buddhist monk, because that's what he says. But... I actually think that what he does is he takes that as his job description, right? And so he does it, whether or not he is it or not in some inherent way. That's not so important. What is important is that he lives out this place of kindness and compassion. That's the place of wisdom, right? So you can do that. You could go to work tomorrow and your job description at your work is to be the bodhisattva of compassion. You don't need to tell anybody. Let it be a secret. Just do it and see what happens. And that is the place where we really begin to take our practice and embody it and live it and take it out into the world. So, I think I'll stop there and see if you have questions or comments. There's one right back there right now. Yeah, could you differentiate between sharing the Dharma in everyday life versus proselytizing? Yeah. 
I think the interesting place is where you're interested in the ending of suffering. So you can talk to someone about the ending of their suffering or what might help with the ending of their suffering without being attached to their coming to Vipassana Santa Cruz with you to meditate. You don't have to make them sign on any dotted line or say that they believe in anything. Now, the proselytizing thing is usually trying to convert somebody to a particular way of thinking. Mostly, you know, here's a story that might help. Uh, It was years ago, I think it was Stephen Levine, talking about how to be with people who are dying. And someone said, well, you know, what if, what if they're not Buddhist and they, they don't, you know, they don't believe and they don't know about karma, and and and, and he, his answer was something to the effect of, and if you try to talk to them about Buddhism at that point, all they're going to do is get upset, right? Here's somebody who's dying. There, they've been whatever they've been for 85 years. What you want to do, because you trust in that sense that each moment creates the karma for the next moment, is you want them to die in as happy a frame of mind as possible. So you talk to them about their life and how much they loved people and how good they were and the happy time you all had at the family reunion last year or whatever, because that's what will bring ease to their mind. You're not trying to make them be anything. Does that help? Think it through? Yeah. It's a sweet story. It's fun to tell it anyway. So, yeah. Other questions or comments? If not. Please. Um, you were talking about concern. Mm-hmm. concern. Yeah, I was thinking about that. And it seems like I guess to me, concern and fear almost seem to be the same. And I don't, you know what I mean? And I don't know if you can, if you can distinguish between I'm concerned about something. I guess, I guess it'll, it depends on the level of where you are. If it's, it becomes fearful or if it's just something that you're actually just concerned about mm-hmm. not don't attach to the other emotion. Fear is often considered to be, it is one of the aversive mind states. Right? It's where the mind contracts. And so when that's there, it's a bit of a hindrance. And it's, you're, it's usually thought that you're not seeing so clearly. Right? You can't see. Most of us can't see real clearly when we're afraid. It is possible to have concern without fear, right? where the heart opens, where the seeing is clear, where you're willing to do whatever you need to do, you know, because you are, because you have this caring for beings. I don't know that we get to have it in a pure way. So, you know, there's that teaching about courage, which is when you do something anyway, even when you're afraid, do it afraid. So I think there's concern that might have, you might know, "Mm, there's a place where I'm afraid, but you do it anyway, because your heart's bigger than your fear, probably. Yeah. 
You know, there's a wonderful teaching from Rumi. Rumi says, your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If your hand were always open or always closed, you would be paralyzed. So it's that sense of we expand, we contract, we expand. It's, it's just an inherent rhythm in our being, in the nature of our lives. And that expansion and contraction, you can expect it will happen. So your heart may open, you have this great passion for the world, for something that you want to do, and then you go to bed some night and you are just scared. Whoa. Okay, just fear. Now fear is, if you'll excuse me, fear is just a mind state. And often, if you wait long enough, after a while, it begins to soften, and then you open again. So it's not a... You know, like anything else, it's not permanent. And it's hugely helpful to begin to recognize that, that you don't have to obey your fear. You may have to wait it out, but you don't have to obey it. Yeah. Please. What is the true test of intention? I mean, how, how is that expressed? I mean, if you, if you have an intention to do something, and then... Your resolve weakens, and maybe after a while you think it wasn't such a good idea anyway. You know, and you and you and you have this. What I read is fake-heartedness. At least that's in the in the, uh, in the mm-hmm. that I've uh, mm-hmm. come across. They talk about so so we talk about heart being open. And, and reflecting, you know, but there's a this sense of courage and a sense of resolve. Right. And without the courage and resolve, you're disheartened. Yeah. And then you get off course, and then you discover that you're going west instead of east, and then you correct your course. That's the beauty of an. Intention is different from attachment. And it is very much like setting a course. One of my stories I tell a lot is of a pilot on some major airline who was asked, how do you keep the airplane on course all the time? He said, we're never on course. We're always correcting. And so intention is very like that. You know, we're always correcting. And sometimes, you, sometimes we do realize, we've, oh, that isn't such a good idea. And you really think about it, maybe take some time, talk to your trusted advisors, whatever, and then you change your course. Not a good idea to go east anymore. Time to go north. So, I mean, that's certainly, at different points in life, we change course, right? Because it's time. Your health isn't as good, you're aging, whatever. And so then you shift a little bit. That's when you feel open-minded. Open-minded? Yeah. Yeah. You are not open-minded, you don't. Yes. And then you're attached, and then you are going to suffer. Just like the Buddha said. You know, if you've got to go north all the time, and you get really attached, and then you drift off, you are going to suffer. And that's where people beat themselves up, and it's, it's hard. We've all done both of them. So, Okay, one more, and then we'll stop. Mary, you mentioned something from a talk um, that Gil had said. 
Uh huh. And it struck me as being really profound, and then it vanished from my mind. <laughs> Do you recall what? To express the the your Buddha nature was what he was talking about. That that we that what part of what we're doing in our practice is learning to express that, to find it, and to express it. I think that's. Well, I listened. Or Gil was one of the teachers on this retreat, so I was listening to a lot of Gil. I'm not sure that I quoted anything else, but that's that's okay. Okay, it just sounded different in my brain at the time. Right, probably better. (laughs) So, since we have tea tonight, let me stop. If anybody has any remaining questions, we'll do them after we. There's just a couple of announcements. Um, there is a day long this Saturday. Um, Jill Hyman is teaching it from 10 to 4. If you missed her series on loving kindness practice, this is probably the day to come to. And if you came to the series on loving kindness practice, I think this day is sort of expected to be a kind of continuation. So Saturday, um, 10 until 4. <clears throat> and then um, the Vipassana Santa Cruz retreat is happening at the end of May at Land of Medicine Buddha on Memorial Day weekend, the 25th to the 30th. There are a few places left. So if you'd like to come sit with this community, um, pick up one of these flyers. You can register. There is scholarship if you need it. Um, So we're happy to have you. It's really a nice, it feels like family, you know. We all get together there and practice. I'll be teaching it along with Bob. And Jason, Jill will be, um, is sort of learning to do more retreat teaching, so she'll be sitting in uh, there and probably giving a talk. And Marcy Reynolds, who teaches Qigong before this sitting on Thursdays, will be teaching Qigong there. So, all right. Um, And then just a reminder about the Donna baskets as you go out. There's one to support this place, and we do dearly need it, so uh, we, we don't pay the rent without your help or anything else, you know, buy the supplies we need or any of that. And the other is to support the teachings, so. Okay. <clears throat>